Welcome to another episode of the Procrastination Castle series. In the last episode, we went through practical solutions and strategies to deal with procrastination tendencies. Dr. Jones discussed various methods you can use to get rid of this paralyzing habit. Today, it's all about kids and how to raise our children so they are intrinsically motivated how to help them in their long-term goals without pushing them in a way that turns them into future procrastinators. Parents want the best for their kids and it's confusing to find the right method. Dr. Jones will answer questions like, does tough love work? How can you guide your kid to be disciplined without harsh methods? How can you raise a motivated and happy kid with compassion? I think it's important to enjoy the journey of raising our kids whilst enabling them to reach their full potential. Hello, Dr. Jones, what do you think about this? Is it important to enjoy the journey of raising our kids or should it be all about accomplishing one task after the other? Well, thanks for having me, Shabnam. And uh, yeah, for sure, that's a, that's a worthwhile goal. Um, you have set me up now to answer these questions definitively. I'm gonna do my best to, to shed light in an ongoing dialogue. Um, and, and to provide reasonable answers um, to these questions. So let's, let's jump in. Thank you, I can't wait. So in the Serial Procrastinators episode, we talked how our childhood experiences shape a lot of our procrastination tendencies. So I'm really thrilled that we're discussing kids today because for them, there is a lot of opportunity to get it right from the beginning. Uh, any parent that I talk to wants to have happy and motivated kids, but we all find it difficult to determine the line between enabling and supporting versus trying to force the right behavior. So I'd like if you give us some points. <laughs> I asked someone I respect very much, um, what was his, did he have any parenting tips for me as I was in the midst of my, uh, my boy's difficult stage? And he thought about it for a second and finally said, be reasonable. <laughs> so I've taken that. That actually is very helpful to me at times of distress and frustration. Uh, it's not easy raising kids, but I hope we can offer our listeners some useful principles today. Very good. Um, yes, be reasonable. But then it's difficult. In the middle of life, with all everything else that we have to do, sometimes it is difficult to be reasonable. But Maybe to make the, uh, this uh, conversation a little easier, uh, when I think about motivation for kids, um, two categories come to my mind. One is getting them to do the daily tasks that you have to do. There is no getting away from them, like brushing their teeth without being asked or doing their homework and stuff like this. Or and the other one is to help them pursue long-term goals when their reward isn't immediate. Hmm. So maybe start with the easy one. Let's talk about the daily tasks first. Hmm. So we are all busy as parents and also non-parents. Everybody is busy. We have to handle work and home life. And there isn't always enough time to give multiple warnings to our kids when it's time to stop something and start something else. I find that uh, kids, like most procrastinators, have problem starting a non-preferred task, uh, like getting ready for school, and then have difficulty stopping what they're doing too, like stopping to play when it's time to go to school or to go to an activity that it's pre-planned for them. So I was wondering, like from a ch you, you talked about being reasonable, so I was wondering from a child's circuitry, brain circuitry perspective, can we actually expect this? 
based on how their brain is wired, say when they're eight o'clock, eight years old, or six years old, or nine years old, is it something that actually a kid's brain is able to accomplish and to comprehend, or is it just too much? We expect too much. Mm. Well, you can see even in two and three year olds this sort of default setting um, as they start to have control, as they start to have a say in what happens. Um, I'll, I, all parents have heard their kids say, no, I don't want to, right? As kids start to learn that they have control and a say in things, their natural tendency is to put off things that aren't fun or are even unpleasant, um, to, to put off stopping pleasant things and to, to put off doing uncomfortable things in favor of immediately gratifying things. So it's really, this is how we're, we kind of enter the world with these default settings which we know that's why we're here for this series ultimately these strategies don't work and it's much better to do your work first and to do your play later um okay so you came that the, you said that the the kids come with the um, with the default of wanting to do the fun thing they are doing and then mm. i wonder based on the requirements or what is mandated to us in the in the modern life are we actually ruining this natural process by, by demanding all these tasks to be done at a certain time? Are we ruining the childhood experience and are we somehow meddling or stopping, say, their creativity process or, or for the things to naturally fall in place? Are we, are we doing this? Well, we're, we're intentionally shaping the child to not, um, to not have that, that default preference for immediate gratification. We're, we're teaching the child, um, hopefully, you know, they feel that we're beside them as they're having the learning experience that working first and playing later really is the best way. Um, that the rewards are sweeter when your work is done. Um, that, so, that rewards are sweeter when the work's done sooner rather than later. Um, the payoff, uh, it's very clear to us as adults that procrastination doesn't work, right? And so kids come into the world, we, we all come into the world with the default setting of just wanting pleasure and wanting to avoid pain, right? Yes. So the work of brushing one's teeth when you're having fun, why do I have to do it now, daddy or mummy, right? Um, I want to do that later. I don't want to stop having fun. Um, so it's up to us to teach kids about the benefits of you know, doing your work now, going to bed at a reasonable time is another example, right, of being able to delay gratification for the sake of having a good day tomorrow. Okay. Uh, so, so it's a learning process, and it's up to us to teach kids about that, to orient them to the rewards of doing that. Um, a lot of parents naturally, in the heat of the moment, reach for punishment methods, coercive methods, right? And thereby you're robbing the child of developing internal controls such that they want to get their work over with so they can have sweeter play later. Yes. Um punishment and maybe fearing like maybe saying that if you don't you brush your teeth now you're gonna have crooked teeth you will have to go to but yeah. that would be fear-based wouldn't or, it or using force or or fear bringing in um, unnatural punishments if you don't brush your teeth now and then when you're not there to enforce with these artificial methods the child is naturally gonna gonna do whatever they want right which Correct. they're gonna do what feels good now so so you're missing an opportunity to teach internal controls such that the child can think well you know I, I don't really want to do that now 
but my future self will thank me if I do it now. Do you think a, a nine-year-old can really think well, this that's, complicated? Well, that's a tall order for a nine-year-old or a two-year-old. I was thinking of the teeth brushing, you know, with toddlers. Um, yeah, in the beginning, they're not going to get it on an abstract level. They're not going to represent all that. Um, so very simply, you know, come on, let's do it now and let, let's get it out of the way. And then we can have 10 more minutes of TV watching and all our work is done. Um, so you're, you're really providing a lot of the, you're scaffolding. You're meeting them where they're at developmentally, but you're mindful to the long-term task of creating kids with internal controls, right? You're orienting them, you're making the rewards of doing it now more salient. Um, and they're going to learn from that, even if they can't articulate it in an abstract way at three, four, or even nine. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, a parent I know, I was talking to them and they were saying that uh, their child is categorically saying now no mm. to everything. Mm. Brush your hair, no. Uh, mm. Brush your teeth, no. Get ready for school, no. So, sh so the child is just saying no to everything. And mm. I read uh, this book about bonding with our kids and uh, it's called Hold On To Your Kids and it's a great book. And it says sometimes where children do not do the, the stuff that they're supposed to do, they do not listen is because the bonding with parents has become a bit weak. Mm -hmm. So th this is just a way of restoring control or power or whatever it is. Do you think maybe if we're dealing with a child that is wants to procrastinate on everything, maybe this is an angle that we should look at? Mm. Well, actually, you know, uh, maybe some listeners are thinking about their children who, who, who present real difficult challenges, you know, screaming tantrums when it's time to turn off the TV and go brush our teeth and bedtime and all that. Um, I think a writer that I really like, not just a writer, but a publisher of, of very in-depth guides for parents, uh, Dr. Ross Green, uh, livesinthebalance.org. Um, Dr. Ross Green wrote the book many years ago, The Explosive Child. So he's really looking at those two, three, and four, and even five-year-olds, older kids, who are explosive in their temper when presented with, you know, delay of gratification situations. It's very frustrating to a child. Stop pleasure now? Yes. Or, or do something unpleasant now? Are you kidding me? Right? Yeah. Um, so he talks about, you know, these are really opportunities for bonding. Sorry to take us away from what you introduced there. The concept of regarding these moments as opportunities to teach and through teaching you're, you're bonding with your kid. And step one in, in Dr. Green's uh, method is the empathy step. So you might turn off the TV and just simply present to the child uh, their emotions um, and what they're thinking, what they're experiencing that are causing those emotions and then ask the child did I get that right? So, you know, you're really angry with me for stopping the TV time and saying it's time for bed and brushing teeth. And, uh, and you're thinking that's not fair because you're having a good time. Did I get that right, Johnny? And Johnny might be screaming and kicking at that point. But with that kind of comment, when you present someone's point of view to them, um, it really helps kids to move out of their lizard brain, the tantruming brain, yes. into the cortex. And, you know, someone's articulating my point of view. It makes kids stop and think. 
you've now maximized the chance that they'll pop out of tantrum mode. You've also reduced their guard, so to speak. This is not a conflict anymore. This is someone standing beside me and seeing the world as I see it and articulating my point of view to me. You've now maximized the chance. It might not work, but you've, in, you've maximized the probability um, that you're going to create a, a feeling of bonding, an experience of bonding with your child. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It's it's difficult in the heat of the moment to exactly stay compassionate and calm, I guess. Mm -hmm. You have to be so that this works. But for the sake of the daily tasks and getting your child to have a, a minimum level of discipline, will having a certain routine help so that they expect what's coming and then they are prepped for it? Or if, it, if we're dealing with a child, say, 10 years old, will having a list of what's expected, will that work? Yeah, I think that's another parenting principle um, that jives with parenting intuition and common sense. Um, having a predictable routine will help kids come to accept, well, this is just what we do. This is what we did yesterday um, or last time there was a school night, you know, whatever the case may be. Routines certainly do help. Um, and, and a routine that, that has built into it um, limitations on pleasure. Um, the ability to, you know, do your work first, um, to, to put limits on pleasure, um, and to work first before playing, right? We clean up so that we can have some snack, I think is a daycare song that I learned when my kids were going yes. to daycare. There's a point to this cleaning up, right? Even though it's unpleasant. Yes, okay. All right, so I guess, I guess we have now some tools for dealing with uh, the resistance to doing the daily tasks and the small ones. Another thing that could be super challenging is um, getting the kids to commit to long-term goals. I was talking to a parent and they said their their kid resists going to the football game, the soccer games. And I don't know, I look at the extracurricular activities as something that the kid should want to do. Like if they're playing a musical instrument or if they're part of a team, this should be something that they want to do. So for that specific case, I don't know why they resist it. but sometimes you can witness that there are kids that don't want to pretty much do anything um, so how do we encourage this uh, being motivated and being able to tolerate the the gradual journey of getting somewhere like mm -hmm. playing a musical instrument or getting really mm -hmm. good at soccer so that you can play in a team things like that mm -hmm. how do we how do we foster this journey right so so we're moving forward in development towards stages of childhood where um, there's either a sport or some skill uh, to be learned yeah yes and, and again the underlying structure the underlying problem is the same that w we have to work now for the sake of future benefit so it's very relevant to procrastination yeah mm -hmm. um, doing your piano scales which are not all that fun yes. <laughs> intrinsically um, for the sake of skill development and the joy of music right um, so again you know same principles we're just the, de the details are going to be different um, in general the you know the I would say Ross Green's ideas about starting with the other person's perspective you know like standing beside your child it's an opportunity for bonding when and, and you're modeling empathy you're teaching them to be empathic people too when you start with their point of view even if you disagree with it even if it's immature 
or or um, you know as part of a tantrum that's very annoying and aversive to a parent right you start by joining with your child you're really angry right now or you really don't want to do your scales right now because it's a lot of work and there's there's no fun in this right now and and you kind of understand that it's going to pay off later but that's just not not working for you right now did i get that right and and it, it's a good basis to start a conversation from Makes okay. No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't stop there. There's more, but that that would be a good starting point for this problem, right? A good starting yeah. point, because I, yeah. I would think I thought that if you now I can see this that yeah okay from an Validation. emotional perspective mm -hmm. you're validating the feelings it makes sense. Yeah. So that that would not be or would that be emphasizing on the negative part where you're saying mm -hmm. that I see that you don't want to do it would that mm -hmm. reinforce them not wanting to do it or will mm -hmm. they feel okay I'm heard now my emotions are a little mm -hmm. calmer calmer and I can go on mm -hmm. and do the thing I mean in addition to validating the feelings of the moment you you want to orient them to the rewards if they ever do their scales um, and and it does translate into performing better um, you, in the moments that they're experiencing the rewards of their work from yesterday, you want to bring attention to those rewards in subtle ways. You don't want to be too obvious about it. But you know, in the moment they're struggling with doing the scales or, or going to practice, doing the running, whatever the work is to get good, um, you're, you're empathizing with them and orienting them to the, to the need to do it anyway. Um, when they're experiencing the rewards of their hard work, you want to bring attention to it in subtle ways such that they can store those memories. Oh yeah, that did feel good. And, and some of that joy that I had today came from yesterday's work. So you're, you're helping them make the connections between the work of now and the payoffs that come tomorrow, which is the remedy for procrastination. Right? Yes, it is indeed. Um, so when I think about a long journey, if I, if I am working towards a big goal, little little successes along the way will help me stay motivated. When I see that, okay, yesterday I couldn't do this, now I'm doing this, so I am getting to my goal eventually. Mm. So for a kid, let's let's say a kid plays the piano, they want to be able to play the Pink Panther mm. song, which is uh, complicated and not so easy to play. If you lay out 10 or 15 songs for them and say, okay, if you play these, then at the end of it is Pink Panther, you can play that. Can children relate to and understand this gradual movement through achieving those little goals along the way? Right, so playing the Pink Panther is their favorite. And you're presenting the opportunity to, hey, let's work first, play later. Let's save Pink Panther for the end. Let's do these more challenging, less immediately rewarding things first. Um, so as often as seems reasonable, you're orienting kids um, to this concept, work first, play later. Um, and, and then when they experience the rewards of doing that, at the end there was Pink Panther and wasn't that satisfying because you did all that work, you kind of earned it you're subtly perhaps bringing attention to how good that feels so that they can really experience it and store that as a memory of the payoffs oh okay then that can like be a that. valid yeah. the the gradual goals um which paves the way to show them what's at the end of the tunnel and then show them all the steps to get to the end of tunnel that will help um one of the reasons that grown-ups procrastinate is fear of failure and the fear of failure, the fear in general is something is in us, 
as human beings. And I think that for children also that can be, especially for the long-term goals, it can be a reason not to dare to do something. Mm, right. How do, you, um, how do you help them deal with this fear? For them, it's a big emotion. Mm. They don't know what to do with it. They just don't want to feel bad. And even for grown-ups, it's difficult to control and do something even though you're scared. They say the definition of being courage, courageous is that you do something even if you're very, very scared. Okay. So how can you teach this? How can we teach this to our children to be scared of something mm-hmm. but still go and do it? Well, as I went through my education in developmental psychology, I came across a lot of writers who talk about the adult, the parent, as providing the self-regulation function. You're, you're providing the frontal lobe for your child, and then if you do it well, they internalize um, the methods, the ways of thinking, you know, the strategies for, for dealing with life. Um, they internalize the frontal lobe functions that you're providing. And by the way, it's the frontal lobe that, that helps us work through procrastination tendencies and overcome them, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if fear of failure is creating the aversion to, to getting started, so it's a specific procrastination situation where anxiety, you know, fear of getting it wrong, um, fear of, of failing perhaps in front of other people is, is the obstacle, yeah? Is that mm-hmm. what you're saying? Yes, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's good to, you know, people talk about tough love and pushing your kids hard. Um, you do want to encourage them to have the discomfort. I think we've said that in past episodes. It's, ultimately, it's going to come down to deciding to have discomfort for the sake of your goals and values, right? You're, you're not going to get past this if you're not willing to have some discomfort. But at the same time, you want to meet your child where they're at. Mm-hmm. So warm-up activities, right? Like um, some successive approximation of the goal. Um, okay, you, you don't feel up to doing that. Well, let's do something that's a part of that or early stages of that right now. Let's do that together. Um, you might simultaneously be using validation strategies. You know, the fear of doing that. Okay, well, let's... Let's, let's put that to the side for now. Um, we do intend to do that, but for now let's do something that feels more manageable. So again, we're kind of back to being reasonable, right? Yes. <laughs> Full kind circle. Of like being, yes. Um, I think that the being reasonable becomes difficult where when you don't have enough time, because in an ideal world, parents would not be tired. They would not be short of time, so they will have infinite patience mm. to deal with all these nuances yeah. of, of raising a kid. Yeah, all of this is like perfect world ideal, right, that we're sketching out here. Um, so even parents, you, you know, same principles apply. You do what you can as best you can. And if you should fall short of the, of the perfect, of the ideal in some interaction with your child, rather than beating yourself up, just come back to it, right, the next time you have opportunity. Yeah, well, for me, it, uh, for me dealing with my daughter, it helps me when I think that by having my daughter, I have another chance at childhood. And I'm experiencing all these beautiful moments that happen for her uh, for the first time. And I look at it that it's not going to come back. It's not going to be repeated. She's not gonna, never going to be nine again. So if, if go with, with um, an open heart 
to these instances, to, to what happens, and think that I don't have to be perfect because mm. the children didn't come with a manual. Mm. So we are all trying to get it right, and I think maybe as parents, if we have more mm. compassion for ourselves, for the job we are doing, I think we'll be doing a better job. And the fact that like, maybe, maybe, and this is just a thought, maybe not try to correct everything that happened in our childhood and try to avoid mm. everything that our parents that can, did because they also did trouble. the best <laughs> yes and they also did the best they could yeah for sure mommy blaming is a is a very negative characterization of psychotherapy parent blaming right you don't just want to sit around and do that self-compassion compassion for others apparently they feed each other mm -hmm. um a number of mindfulness authors have talked about that. As you endeavor to be compassionate towards others, you will improve in compassion to the self and vice versa. Compassion for your child when they fall short of being able to not procrastinate or to try something hard, you know, anxiety gets in the way, performance anxiety in particular. Um, you want to meet them where they're at, give them an achievable goal, stand beside them, validating their feelings but orienting them to the rewards of having the discomfort of doing something achievable and as we just mentioned if you should fall short of that perfect parenting um, compassion for yourself too and coming back to it saying well that's on that's that was uh, not ideal let's try not to do that again but I'm not going to get tangled up in beating myself up for that rather I'm going to come back to it and do my best in this moment so in addition to the speeches that we give the kids, because it's so much easier to judge somebody else and give them something when you're not emotionally involved in that. Right. So as an outsider, you, are, you as the parents are not the one feeling the emotion, the kid is. So we, we see it with our grown-up brain and we see it mm. differently. Um, so if, if when we fail at something, mm. so our dialogue with them is also important. What we behave or the way we behave is also important, not just what we say, right? So if I fail at something, if I'm late at something, then I be nice to myself and say, this time it didn't work, or we got this one wrong, mm -hmm. or it's okay, mistakes happen. Mm -hmm. And then that way we can teach them for mm -hmm. the moment that they need it because they certainly remember it. And to my experience, children actually hear everything, mm -hmm. even the things that you think they don't hear. Yeah. So the self-talk, maybe have a loud self-talk. You want your self-talk to be you want to be kind. So self-compassion actually facilitates behavior change. It accelerates behavior change. When you fall short of what you ought to do, um, you want to have acceptance and com compassion for what is the case, some of these unhelpful habits you have, including parenting habits. Um, and you want to model that to your children, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, you want to have a commitment. Listeners might be thinking, oh, this sounds like one of those soft psychologists who's always validating. Oh, that's okay. Of course you did that because you, you, know, you had a bad childhood or whatever. Um, no, we're, we're accepting, but we're also putting our energy into a firm behavioral commitment to not uh, do some of these things that we've identified in our mindful moments. You know, that's unhelpful. I don't want to be you know, spazzing out on my child, uh, making them feel shame when they fall short. I did that yesterday. That's unacceptable to me. I, I'm forgiving myself, but I'm committing also to not doing that again. So, so we're not being, we're not letting ourselves off the hook. We're mm -hmm. putting our energy into commitment for this moment and the next moment, while not getting tangled up in uh, self-criticism for what's behind us in real time. Does that make sense? 
So, does. so acceptance and commitment therapy, as we've alluded to before, um, Stephen Hayes and the network of researchers around the world, um, you know, the acceptance and commitment really captures the compassion, but also putting energy into a behavioral commitment for this moment now. Yes, I think it makes sense for me because the way you were talking about this is not having permissive parenting, but also not having authoritative parenting, meaning that you have some rules and, and regulations in place within reason, so give options to our children. Um, and then talk about rules and regulations. What about screen time? Oh. What I, uh, what I do to regulate screen time is that, okay, you can have one hour now or you can have half an hour now, half an hour later. Which one do you want? So I give, <laughs> I give options yeah. like this, which the, the end result is the same. It's an right. hour of, of screen time. But that if, is too much screen time causing the, pe the kids mm. to be distracted and not being able to commit to short-term goals and long-term goals? Mm-hmm. I remember uh, many years ago I was thinking of designing a, an iPad app for babies <laughs> and uh, just then the pediatric the American Pediatric Association came out with recommended limitations on screen time and at that time I, I couldn't quite get my head around it and it was very disappointing and I shelved the project that I had <laughs> in mind but I've come to believe there's good reason to put limits on screen time um, and it's because you know apps and television shows and so forth they're designed to capture attention and to really um, to give you immediate gratification like a binge it's kind of like candy right yes um, and so you, you wouldn't give your child an unlimited access to lollipops all day every day right Correct. lollipops are special treats um, and, and yeah, there's reason to think maybe no lollipops is the right answer. But um, okay, lollipops once in a while. Same with screen time. And why is that? Well, you, you can see all over the place there's concepts, valid concepts like dopamine detox, something you come across when researching um, these issues on YouTube and, yes. and other places. Mm -hmm. um, if you binge on dopamine, on if you binge on immediate gratification, and then you try to turn to real life and and you know, investing in a conversation, you know, the work that you do to, to have those moments of reward when you're connecting with a person, maybe that's going to be unsatisfying to you. You're used to immediate gratification, rapid yes. fire style. Mm -hmm. And if you don't limit that, you're going to find it hard to deal with life. Yes. Yes, that's very true. I, I, as I walk around in the street or when I'm in the elevator or any kind of public space, I look at people and most people are on their phones and you can even now see it in the, in the older people. Mm. And, and I think that's sad because you, we are made up of a lot of senses. Mm. Um, and children, if they want to read, I find it better if they read books because then they touch the book. So there's the sense of touching is activated, the, the mm -hmm. smell of the paper mm -hmm. of the book. So there are lots of things that are involved and also visually it's not that stimulating. Mm -hmm. So they can have some of their own creativity because it doesn't have movement. Um, so screen time, yes, as you mentioned, I think it does yeah. affect the, the reward circuit. And then it would be difficult to it, it get... It pleases the reward circuit. It does, yes. It does affect it in a... And it becomes the path of least resistance. That's the yes. easiest way to get rewards. And so if children are given unlimited access, they're going to seek that. It's just human nature, right? Um, it's up to us to limit it and to encourage 
um, pursuing rewards that where there's more resistance. You you have to do some work to get those res- those rewards. Reading, you know, playing the playing an instrument, playing a sport, um, giving them a broad array of experiences where there's a lot of uh, little mini and larger uh, examples of delay of gratification. You mm-hmm. work now to get rewards later. Um, so letting them binge on immediate gratification is, is going to be totally unhelpful to that project. Okay. Um, maybe some parents that are listening have children that need to be weaned off of screen uh, because they have had so much. Sometimes um, people just don't have anybody to look after the child and then they, are, they have to do what they have to do. So mm. they try to use sure. the screen as, as a method to keep them quiet and, and get yeah. on about their day if you are trying to get your child to do less mm-hmm. is it like any form of addiction in the beginning you're going to have to put up with the, with a bunch of yelling mm, and yeah. screaming and then withdrawal <laughs> symptoms yeah. I, exactly yeah i can't add much to that that's exactly what you're going to be faced with um, and then you know the strategies we've already reviewed for uh, validating, uh, standing beside your child. You know, when you validate, when you when you present your child's perspective and their feelings, you try to make sense of them. Um, you're you're standing beside them and you're seeing the world through their eyes, and they feel heard and understood. So it's a great bonding experience, right? But you're also being firm. You know, I feel you, but no, we're not going to do that right but now. But also maybe <laughs> replace it with some kind of common activity w- with your kid. Yeah. Uh, they're not playing with the screen, then maybe have a card game with them or something instead. Yeah, and they're they're going to sulk and pout and you know sabotage the card <laughs> game, and and you can you can present that to them. You know, like you, you're never really done um, with all these opportunities for bonding and connecting with your child, even when it's kind of awkward and unpleasant right yes yes i think if we could Mm. come to this understanding it would help us as parents feel a lot less frustrated and also our children to be more emotionally mature as they grow up so we did talk about uh, strengthening the willpower muscle for kids and get them to commit to their goals but i like to talk about uh, how important love is the love of what you're doing so even even for kids, it's the same thing as adults. We don't procrastinate on what we love to do. We would voluntarily do this. Um, I was, uh, I'm gonna give an example. I was watching a winter concert at my daughter's school and as I was looking at the kids' expressions as they were singing. So there were a bunch of songs, different kids, big groups that were singing. And I was looking at their expression and uh, some kids were happy to be there and to, to do the singing. To me, singing and, and listening to music is fun. So if I were a kid, I would have loved this. But then I was looking at some of them and some of them were either expressionless or they just didn't want to be there and they were not even singing hmm. so the how do we discover or help them discover rather than us discover how do we help them discover what they love and how do we get them to be motivated and do it rather than being compliant like the kids at right. the winter, winter concert some of them yeah so so you were seeing the whole spectrum in this winter uh, in this christmas concert presentation. correct yes some kids seemed to be there because um, they had to be and there was no inherent joy in it whereas others were experiencing joy and so of course we want our kids to to be um 
to mo- motivated to pursue rewards rather than to flee from punishment, right? So um, motivation versus compliance. Intrinsic motivation versus complying with, you know, well, my teacher and my mom and dad expect me to do this, so I guess I'll do it because I don't want to rock the boat or get in trouble. Um, yeah, you know, we've mentioned a few times um, in, in the last few minutes um, orienting children to the rewards of doing your work now um, and, and the joy that that can bring, the, the really fulfilling joy, the really big dopamine pleasure response that you can get when, when you have to work at it a little bit, right? Um, moving through a Christmas concert, I can remember those. Um, I guess I had some good teachers and parents because um, those, those were immediately pleasing to me when I was a kid. A lot mm-hmm. of good memories of that. Um, in general, you know, this, this dissociation between motivation and compliance, for me, it maps on to the pursuit of reward versus the fleeing from punishment. Um, the desire to pursue meaningful activities versus the fear of not complying with expectations. So the principles for parents, I guess, it's really to always be orienting, to be modeling this for your kids, to be modeling the experience of, of working now for the sake of joy that comes later, to, to share, to communicate our joy, uh, maybe to communicate our immediate displeasure in doing work now, whether it's household chores, and then orienting kids to how happy we are when the house is clean and how comfy it is to enjoy that beautiful home. Um, just taking opportunities, not in a robotic way, but in a natural way, to orient kids to our experience um, and, and how the pursuit of joy sometimes requires um, some discomfort now, right? We, the more we share that with our kids, and it'll help if they're not glued to screens at the time, um, that we're communicating our own experience of that to children. And then for them, we're observing them and commenting, as Ross Green would say, through empathy, commenting on their discomfort, and we're highlighting and orienting our children to the rewards um, that are inherent in those joys that you have to work for. So sorry for the long-windedness of that's that. That's okay. But that's those are the principles that I would bring to this problem of compliance versus Being inherent intrinsic motivation. Yes, yeah. but if you want to help them, um, because everybody in their life, there would be stuff that they don't want to do, but they have to do, so they may or may not do it. But helping, our, how do we provide opportunities for our children to discover what are the areas that they love? Uh, one child may like to play soccer, the other one may like to play the piano. So how do we present? Because I think there is nature, some stuff, uh, some talents maybe are natural or some tendencies of liking stuff are natural, but a lot of it is also about what's presented to the kids because you cannot be aware of something that you know, you've not seen, you've not experienced. So how can, how can we give various opportunities to our children to discover it for themselves, what they like and mm-hmm. they don't like. Well, I've always said that psychologists have no right to override parental intuition yes. unless they have something really compelling and data-driven, right? Yes. A, a lot of our listeners are tired of waves of pseudoscience or changing scientific conclusions, right? You'll hear at many parents' gatherings um, this principle of uh, exposing your child to a lot of different activities and seeing what takes, right? And I, I think that's just a, a common sense 
parent's intuition that's emerged from real experience and is now communicated you know across parenting networks right um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom in in that you're gonna have to expose your child a few times right and that as we said earlier successive approximations okay you can't do that well what about some easier uh, foundational skills that'll lead to that if you're a little scared of that um, so you know it's gonna take a lot of work to to present all these different activities such that your child can discover joy um, at the same time, overlaid upon all that is the need for um, encouraging tolerance of work and discomfort for the sake of being good at something later. Uh, sorry, I know you're sensitive to being good at something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just you know don't know I mean? how much is to, to, to is enjoy, nature. To yes. enjoy something later. Later, yeah. okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and then, that's yes, these are good points for... Um, for the, the one that we just talked about, about, well, I have one more thing, and um, it's the blame and the conditional love a little bit. I remember years ago I worked somewhere and they had a, a kid that played, uh, played hockey, and uh, he would get really upset if he failed in a game. Uh, I think he was 11 or 12, something like that. And then the dad would say, you know what you you uh, you didn't practice enough so you failed your teammate your teammates you disappointed your teammates and he i think he meant well and wanted to encourage his kid to be able to be better but would this kind of it was true like he had not practiced enough therefore he had disappointed his teammates but is that really a kind of conversation to have with a kid will that get them going like make them mad and get them going or will, will you get reverse <laughs> you know, uh, situation that's a great question i think i've seen some made for tv movies from the 90s and early 2000s where that worked that kind of you know apparently cold tough love dad comment mm -hmm. caused the child to gather himself and and you know you see the montage of of practicing you know with kind of anger i'm going to show dad you know that kind of thing yeah we've seen examples and that's kind of filtered into pop culture now right that concept and that's one of the things you you said at the opening uh, does tough love work yes. right we're all a bit confused about that and this would be an example of that. I, I would say you run the risk of doing harm. So the, the ethical principles, do no harm. Secondly, do good. And there are much more reliable ways of doing good that do not have the risk of doing harm. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage such an approach, but at the same time, I do recognize that it works in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, I would advocate for uh, empathizing, you know, with the child. Sounds soft, perhaps to some fathers listening, some hockey dads that I can think of. But um, I, I would advocate for uh, what we've already talked about: standing beside your child and, and the feelings, the hurt feelings, um, the, the the shame feelings. Um, doing your best to make sense of those feelings. Maybe relate your own experience. And then what? And then orienting them to the next step as they move towards their goals and values, um, it's going to require hard work. And and if you wish to redeem yourself, yeah, you are going to, 
you know, but you, it'd be better to be beside your child while through that montage of video snippets, you know, yes. the practicing and the coming back and pleasing your teammates and redeeming yourself. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't just uh, run the risk by, by putting that on a child's shoulders. Yeah, well, I see this being applied mostly on boys mm -hmm. than girls because um, parents are, generally speaking, more accepting of the feelings of girls compared mm -hmm. to boys so mm -hmm. if a girl is crying they would try to comfort her but if, if the boy not not all parents of course some if the boy is doing this oh come on you're a big guy now and you shouldn't cry and then so I think in a way we deprive our children of feeling their feelings mm -hmm. and all human beings are made mm -hmm. to feel their feelings and therefore is these tough methods are usually applied on boys so maybe specifically if you have a specific advice about mm. raising stronger boys yeah, that sure. can also be connected to their feelings instead of being disconnected and pretending to be tough but in the end of the day uh, kids are kids i just had a vision of kevin costner saying to <laughs> yes. to a little to his son you know let's use that shame and let's use it to you know channel our energy into preparing for the next opportunity right emotions are meant to orient attention to what's important so it's good to teach that explicitly to children. Let's use that emotion to guide our attention and our desire, right? Our, our behavior um, in this, towards the goals that are important to us, right? That's the function of emotions. Um, and so, yeah, that, those old ways of thinking, emotions get in the way of, of reason. That's not uh, withstood the test of time. <laughs> yes, and we are not. I'm not just talking about little kids here. I think um, I I hear this a lot. Where for a 13 year old or a 14 year old, they say, I think parents or people in general maybe sometimes mistaken they're being disconnected from them, the bonding being broken, then the kid uh, with the kids being independent. When they keep saying, when the kids keep saying, oh, I don't care or they pretend like they're all tough, I think that's one. That's maybe when we should be a little worried, especially if they're not focused on their, they refuse uh, to do what they're supposed to do or they're not good at school. So even for teenagers, mm. and maybe it's even more important for teenagers, uh, the compassionate kind of conversation. Mm. Because yeah. they do, the more they feel alienated from their parents, the more tantrums they, they throw, so yeah. Maybe have a, a little bit of a advice for us for teenagers. Um, so, I've forgotten the writer, but when I was in grad school, there was a paper that came through. Um, I'd rather be bad than sad, right? And it was really, it was the the sort of I don't care teenager, who's kind of a little bit, you know exploring juvenile delinquency maybe uh, poor attitude to school denial of you know giving a, a quarter of a care shall we say yes um, I don't care uh, it's really very a, a primitive defense right um, I'd rather be bad and say I don't care uh, people can be mad at me for not caring that'd be that's less risky than than trying and failing and then being shamed or sad right so I'd rather be bad than sad um, it's a common thing for teenagers. It's it's such an easy defensive stance, right, to disguise your fear as apathy, um, and maybe to persuade yourself that you don't care. Right? Yes, it's easier than um, having pain. Yeah, and and running the risk of failing. Uh, that's just 
you know, that might be particularly problematic for a child or a teen who's, uh, for whatever reason, become um, highly sensitive to failure. And you can imagine the kinds of developmental pathways that, that could set a child up for that, right? The kinds of parenting experiences. Not to blame parents, but, you know, what's behind us is behind us. But if I was working with that adolescent, I would be um, trying to chip away uh, in an empathic way at that uh, denial defense, right? I, I, I wouldn't take it at face value. Uh, so, Dr. Jones, we so far, uh, we covered, well, you covered a lot of material, and we went through lots of, lots of subjects uh, for raising happy and motivated kids. Um, it's good to wrap it up so that um, parents and people that listen into the podcast have a few points, anchor points that they can refer to and remember um, and then maybe revise their strategies if they want to based on what they heard today. So we did um, talk about that sometimes kids are very defiant to doing their tasks or pursuing a long-term goal because the bonding with the parent is, has become weak. So maybe explain to us a little bit on how to identify or be cognizant of this, and then a few little things that parents can do to reinforce the bonding and, and repair what's maybe missing or damaged a little bit. And to create kids that don't procrastinate. Let's not lose sight of our original goal. Yes. Well, um, you, you said that I covered, I, I think we jointly constructed Shabnam. And sure. you, as I was telling you in the break, um, you helped me get clear on what I think by asking some really good questions. It's great to hear. So we've talked about the bond as being foundational to um, getting kids to listen to you, pay attention to you, to model themselves after you. Um, as well as just the, the, the general wellness benefits that come from a good bond. Um, I think Ross Green's work goes a long way to making that happen um, for so many reasons. When you start with the child's point of view and you get down on their level and articulate their perspective on a silver platter, um, the child feels heard and understood. Um, it, in a, it facilitates mindfulness. The child can now look at their own thoughts that were just reflected back to them. And then when the child, when you've achieved that, you're saying, here are some other ways to look at it. Here's where I'm coming from, child. Here's the adult way of looking at it. Basically, work first, play later. Yes. Um, and then the child, you know, you've maximized the chance for the child to take that in and be able to work first and play later in that moment. So Ross Green, by, start, by advising parents to start with the other, with the child's point of view, um, that's such a great way to start a bond, right? The child feels heard and understood and develops the capacity to reflect on their own feelings. Um, and here's this loving parent um, facilitating all that for them. So, and then the yeah. time, what about the time spent with kids? Because uh, maybe by trying to get them to do, mm. uh, to do different activities, mm -hmm. then it's not us doing anything with them. And then, then all the parenting times end up being hauling them to different mm. classes instead of actually doing something uh, together. Right, right. Um, yeah, we t we are gonna, we're going to make a summary of, of what we think is helpful. Um, you know, uh, a sort of bullet point list. And one of them is exposing them to a variety of activities where there's work 
first and joy later, like whether it's an instrument or a sport or some form of art. Um, and it's important to do some of that with them, whether it's practicing um, together or early steps towards being ready for some activity together. Um, it, it, while you're at home together to be modeling your own experience of not procrastinating and, and some of the struggles, your own struggles with that, highlighting the rewards of work first, play later, right? Mm -hmm. um, just being really open and communicative with your child about um, the payoffs as well as the pains of not procrastinating such that they can observe you and learn from you and see that, yes, um, I, I do this, but then I get that. And so you're, you're just, through many methods, reinforcing that concept of and work first, play later. Yeah. And also, I, I think you don't really have to be necessarily good at something to do it. I love learning languages. I'm not good at it. It takes me a while to learn. Like when I, when I was learning French, it took me a year to get the pronunciation right. But the process, I accepted that it's a long process. It took me a lot of efforts to learn, but that never made me mad. I enjoyed the process. So I like to be able to instill that in children so that they find that they, there is this thing that they like, and even though that it's, it may not be that easy, but it doesn't matter. Are you yeah. enjoying it? Do you like it? Even if you're not, you think you're not good at it, does it really matter that much? Before we got started today, you and I had a little debate. Um, yes. I think it's okay for us to, to debate, quote-unquote, on the air. Um, it brings up the whole nature-nurture thing. I, I do think that natural talent um, is a factor, and if you don't have natural talent, or if you have less, you're going to have to do more work to get where you want to go, right? And that's okay. Uh, in nature versus nurture, uh, blank slate versus, uh, you know, bringing something uh, being being born with innate talent. I mean, I certainly, as a psychologist, believe in uh, variance, you know, individual differences in natural ability for different things, right? Um, and if you don't have it, you're going to have to work harder. Okay. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing. I think <laughs> if you enjoy painful, something, you got to you got to do it. <laughs> and then uh, we talked about the uh, the teaching the kids our kids that not everything is immediate mm -hmm. and that sometimes I have to tolerate the discomfort and go through a long journey to get to their goals. Um, so maybe give us some points on that one. Mm. Well, that's what we're really teaching. And the ways we've articulated today are through bringing your child's attention um, to their pain as well as the rewards of having discomfort to get to where you want to, to achieve goals, to move towards your values. Um, being compassionate with your children, being reasonable with your children, but at the same time encouraging them and modeling for them the capacity to make strong behavioral commitments. I will have my discomfort as I move towards what's valuable to me. I think someone did a meta-analysis of the most powerful concept in psychotherapy, and it was self-efficacy. So psychotherapies that promote self-efficacy um, and by extension, we can imagine parenting practices that promote self-efficacy. What is that? What do you mean by um, self-efficacy? It's broken down very well by, again, Stephen Hayes and colleagues. Self-efficacy is, I, I will encounter difficulty, I will have discomfort, and I, I acknowledge and accept all that, 
mindfully as I orient to what I care about and take action, committed action now, and move towards my values. So it's acceptance of pain, and then orienting to where you want to go, what you want to have in your life, and moving with commitment towards that, with with action. So it, uh, I keep thinking of this little little league coach that I heard say to the boys, "Yeah, I'm scared of striking out, and I'm going to focus on the ball." Yes. You acknowledge and accept. The, the fear, um, and that can be a source of procrastination, and then you orient to the goal and move. And that's really a, a basic truth that's at the heart of all of, of this Procrastination Castle series. Okay, so it's, it's um, to teach our children that it's actually more courageous and honorable to feel the pain and to acknowledge, acknowledge that yeah. they are human beings and they have pain, uh, rather than the apathy and pretending like they don't care. Yeah, to, to be honest with themselves. I am scared, and it is painful, and I don't want to. And I'm almost buying into my various excuses why I don't have to or I can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think um, we discussed really good points today. I enjoyed that conversation. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for being here today and uh, for helping us, uh, me included, become better parents. Likewise, thank you for the experience, and um, I think we constructed a lot of clarity together today, so I'm grateful for that too. Thank you.